0: Chapter 7 of A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland. Chapter 7 Child Raising on Mars. After a breakfast, which was an exact replica of the meal of the preceding day, and an index of practically every meal which followed while I was with the Green Men of Mars, Sola escorted me to the Plaza. Where I found the entire community engaged in watching or helping at the harnessing of huge mastodonian animals to great three-wheeled chariots. There were about 250 of these vehicles, each drawn by a single animal, any one of which from their appearance might easily have drawn the entire wagon train when fully loaded. The chariots themselves were large, commodious, and gorgeously decorated in each was seated a female martian loaded with ornaments of metal with jewels and silks and furs and upon the back of each of the beasts which drew the chariots was perched a young martian driver like the animals upon which the warriors were mounted the heavier draught animals wore neither bit nor bridle but were guided entirely by telepathic means this power is wonderfully developed in all martians and accounts largely for the simplicity of their language and the relatively few spoken words exchanged even in long conversations. It is the universal language of Mars, through the medium of which the higher and lower animals of this world of paradoxes are able to communicate to a greater or less extent, depending upon the intellectual sphere of the species and the development of the individual. As the cavalcade took up the line of march in single file, Sola dragged me into an empty chariot and we proceeded with the procession toward the point by which I had entered the city the day before. At the head of the caravan rode some two hundred warriors, five abreast, and a like number brought up the rear, while twenty-five or thirty outriders flanked us on either side. Every one but myself, men, women, and children, were heavily armed, and at the tail of each chariot trotted a Martian hound, my own beast following closely behind ours. In fact, The faithful creature never left me voluntarily during the entire ten years I spent on Mars. Our way led out across the little valley before the city, through the hills, and down into the dead sea-bottom which I had traversed on my journey from the incubator to the plaza. The incubator, as it proved, was the terminal point of our journey this day, and, as the entire cavalcade broke into a mad gallop as soon as we reached the level expanse of sea-bottom, We were soon within sight of our goal. On reaching it, the chariots were parked with military precision on the four sides of the enclosure, and half a score of warriors, headed by the enormous chieftain, and including Tars Tarkas and several other lesser chiefs, dismounted and advanced toward it. I could see Tars Tarkas explaining something to the principal chieftain, whose name, by the way, was, as nearly as I can translate it into English, Lorquas Potomel Jed, Jed being his title. I was soon apprised of the subject of their conversation, as, calling to Sola, Tars Tarkas signed for her to send me to him. I had by this time mastered the intricacies of walking under Martian conditions, and, quickly responding to his command, I advanced to the side of the incubator where the warriors stood. As I reached their side, a glance showed me that all but a very few eggs had hatched, the incubator being fairly alive with the hideous little devils. They ranged in height from three to four feet, and were moving restlessly about the enclosure as though searching for food. As I came to a halt before him, Tars Tarkas pointed over the incubator, and said, "'Sock!' I saw that he wanted me to repeat my performance of yesterday for the edification of Loquas and. As I must confess that my prowess gave me no little satisfaction, I responded quickly, leaping entirely over the parked chariots on the far side of the incubator. As I returned, Lorquas Ptomel grunted something at me, and, turning to his warriors, gave a few words of command relative to the incubator. They paid no further attention to me and I was thus permitted to remain close and watch their operations, which consisted in breaking an opening in the wall of the incubator large enough to permit the exit of the young Martians. On either side of this opening the women and the younger Martians, both male and female, formed two solid walls leading out through the chariots, two solid walls leading out through the chariots and quite away into the plain beyond. Between these walls the little Martians scampered, wild as deer, being permitted to run the full length of the aisle, where they were captured, one at a time, by the women and older children, the last in the line capturing the first little one to reach the end of the gauntlet, her opposite in the line capturing the second, and so on, until all the little fellows had left the enclosure and been appropriated by some youth or female. As the women caught the young, they fell out of line, and returned to their respective chariots, while those who fell into the hands of the young men were later turned over to some of the women. I saw that the ceremony, if it could be dignified by such a name, was over, and, seeking out Sola, I found her in our chariot, with a hideous little creature held tightly in her arms. The work of rearing young green Martians consists solely in teaching them to talk, And to use the weapons of warfare, with which they are loaded down from the very first year of their lives. Coming from eggs in which they have lain for five years, the period of incubation, they step forth into the world perfectly developed, except in size. Entirely unknown to their mothers, who, in turn, would have difficulty in pointing out the fathers with any degree of accuracy, they are the common children of the community, and their education devolves upon the females Who chance to capture them as they leave the incubator. Their foster mothers may not even have had an egg in the incubator, as was the case with Sola, who had not commenced to lay until less than a year before she became the mother of another woman's offspring. But this counts for little among the green Martians, as parental and filial love is as unknown to them as it is common among us. I believe this horrible system, which has been carried on for ages, is the direct cause of the loss of all the finer feelings and higher humanitarian instincts among these poor creatures. From birth they know no father or mother love. They know not the meaning of the word home. They are taught that they are only suffered to live until they can demonstrate by their physique and ferocity that they are fit to live. Should they prove deformed or defective in any way, they are promptly shot nor do they see a tear-shed for a single one of the many cruel hardships they pass through from earliest infancy. I do not mean that the adult Martians are unnecessarily or intentionally cruel to the young. But theirs is a hard and pitiless struggle for existence upon a dying planet, the natural resources of which have dwindled to a point where the support of each additional life means an added tax upon the community into which it is thrown by careful selection they rear only the hardiest specimens of each species and with almost supernatural foresight they regulate the birth-rate to merely offset the loss by death each adult martian female brings forth about thirteen eggs each year and those which meet the size weight and specific gravity tests are hidden in the recesses of some subterranean vault where the temperature is too low for incubation Every year, these eggs are carefully examined by a council of twenty chieftains, and all but about one hundred of the most perfect are destroyed out of each yearly supply. At the end of five years, about five hundred almost perfect eggs have been chosen from the thousands brought forth. These are then placed in the almost airtight incubators, to be hatched by the sun's rays after a period of another five years. The hatching, which we had witnessed today was a fairly representative event of its kind, all but about one per cent of the eggs hatching in two days. If the remaining eggs ever hatched, we knew nothing of the fate of the little Martians. They were not wanted, as their offspring might inherit, and transmit the tendency to prolonged incubation, and thus upset the system which has maintained for ages, and which permits the adult Martians to figure the proper time for return to the incubators, almost to an hour the incubators are built in remote fastnesses where there is little or no likelihood of their being discovered by other tribes the result of such a catastrophe would mean no children in the community for another five years i was later to witness the results of the discovery of an alien incubator the community of which the green martians with whom my lot was cast formed a part. Was composed of some thirty thousand souls. They roamed an enormous tract of arid and semi arid land between forty and eighty degrees south latitude, and bounded on the east and west by two large fertile tracts. Their headquarters lay in the southwest corner of this district, near the crossing of two of the so called Martian canals. As the incubator had been placed far north of their own territory, in a supposedly uninhabited and unfrequented area, WE HAD BEFORE US A TREMENDOUS JOURNEY, CONCERNING WHICH I, OF COURSE, KNEW NOTHING. AFTER OUR RETURN TO THE DEAD CITY, I PASSED SEVERAL DAYS IN COMPARATIVE IDLENESS. ON THE DAY FOLLOWING OUR RETURN, ALL THE WARRIORS HAD RIDDEN FORTH EARLY IN THE MORNING, AND HAD NOT RETURNED UNTIL JUST BEFORE DARKNESS FELL. AS I LATER LEARNED, THEY HAD BEEN TO THE SUBTERRANEAN vaults IN WHICH THE EGGS WERE KEPT, AND HAD TRANSPORTED THEM TO THE INCUBATOR which they had then walled up for another five years, and which in all probability would not be visited again during that period. The vaults which hid the eggs until they were ready for the incubator were located many miles south of the incubator, and would be visited yearly by the council of twenty chieftains. Why they did not arrange to build their vaults and incubators nearer home has always been a mystery to me and, like many other Martian mysteries, unsolved and unsolvable by earthly reasoning and customs. Sola's duties were now doubled, as she was compelled to care for the young Martian as well as for me. But neither one of us required much attention, and, as we were both about equally advanced in Martian education, Sola took it upon herself to train us together. Her prize consisted in a male, about four feet tall, very strong and physically perfect. Also, he learned quickly, and we had considerable amusement, at least I did, over the keen rivalry we displayed. The Martian language, as I have said, is extremely simple, and in a week I could make all my wants known and understand nearly everything that was said to me. Likewise, under Sola's tutelage, I developed my telepathic powers so that I shortly could sense practically everything that went on around me. What surprised Sola most in me was that while I could catch telepathic messages easily from others, and often, when they were not intended for me, no one could read a jot from my mind under any circumstances. At first this vexed me, but later I was very glad of it, as it gave me an undoubted advantage over the Martians. End of chapter 7 Chapter 8 of A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland. Chapter 8 A Fair Captive from the Sky. The third day after the incubator ceremony, we set forth toward home. But scarcely had the head of the procession debouched into the open ground before the city than orders were given for an immediate and hasty return. As though trained for years in this particular evolution, the green Martians melted like mist into the spacious doorways of the nearby buildings, until in less than three minutes the entire cavalcade of chariots, mastodons, and mounted warriors was nowhere to be seen. Sola and I had entered a building upon the front of the city, in fact the same one in which I had had my encounter with the apes, and wishing to see what had caused the sudden retreat, I mounted to an upper floor and peered from the window out over the valley and the hills beyond and there i saw the cause of their sudden scurrying to cover a huge craft long low and gray painted swung slowly over the crest of the nearest hill following it came another and another and another until twenty of them swinging low above the ground sailed slowly and majestically toward us each carried a strange banner swung from stem to stern above the upper works and upon the prow of each was painted some odd device that gleamed in the sunlight and showed plainly even at the distance at which we were from the vessels i could see figures crowding the forward decks and upper works of the aircraft whether they had discovered us or simply were looking at the deserted city i could not say but in any event they received a rude reception for suddenly and without warning The green Martian warriors fired a terrific volley from the windows of the buildings facing the little valley across which the great ships were so peacefully advancing. Instantly the scene changed, as by magic. The foremost vessel swung broadside toward us, and bringing her guns into play returned our fire, at the same time moving parallel to our front for a short distance, and then turning back with the evident intention of completing a great circle which would bring her up to position once more opposite our firing line. The other vessels followed in her wake, each one opening upon us as she swung into position. Our own fire never diminished, and I doubt if twenty-five percent of our shots went wild. It had never been given to me to see so much deadly accuracy of aim and it seemed as though a little figure on one of the craft dropped at the explosion of each bullet, while the banners and upper works dissolved in spurts of flame as the irresistible projectiles of our warriors mowed through them. The fire from the vessels was most ineffectual, owing, as I afterward learned, to the unexpected suddenness of the first volley, which caught the ship's crews entirely unprepared, and the sighting apparatus of the guns unprotected from the deadly aim of our warriors. It seems that each green warrior has certain objective points for his fire under relatively identical circumstances of warfare. For example, a proportion of them, always the best marksmen, direct their fire entirely upon the wireless finding and sighting apparatus of the big guns of an attacking naval force. Another detail attends to the smaller guns in the same way. Others pick off the gunners, still others the officers while certain other quotas concentrate their attention upon the other members of the crew, upon the upper works, and upon the steering gear and propellers. Twenty minutes after the first volley, the great fleet swung trailing off in the direction from which it had first appeared. Several of the craft were limping perceptibly, and seemed but barely under the control of their depleted crews. Their fire had ceased entirely, and all their energies seemed focused upon escape. Our warriors then rushed up to the roofs of the buildings which we occupied, and followed the retreating armada with a continuous fusillade of deadly fire. One by one, however, the ships managed to dip below the crests of the outlying hills until only one barely moving craft was in sight. This had received the brunt of our fire, and seemed to be entirely unmanned, as not a moving figure was visible upon her decks slowly she swung from her course circling back toward us in an erratic and pitiful manner instantly the warriors ceased firing for it was quite apparent that the vessel was entirely helpless and far from being in a position to inflict harm upon us she could not even control herself sufficiently to escape as she neared the city the warriors rushed out upon the plain to meet her but it was evident that she still was too high for them to hope to reach her decks from my vantage point in the window, I could see the bodies of her crew strewn about, although I could not make out what manner of creatures they might be. Not a sign of life was manifest upon her as she drifted slowly with the light breeze in a southeasterly direction. She was drifting some fifty feet above the ground, followed by all but some hundred of the warriors, who had been ordered back to the roofs to cover the possibility of return of the fleet, or of reinforcements. It soon became evident that she would strike the face of the buildings about a mile south of our position, and, as I watched the progress of the chase, I saw a number of warriors gallop ahead, dismount, and enter the building she seemed destined to touch. As the craft neared the building, and just before she struck, the Martian warriors swarmed upon her from the windows, and with their great spears eased the shock of the collision, and in a few moments they had thrown out grappling-hooks, and the big boat was being hauled to ground by their fellows below. After making her fast, they swarmed the sides and searched the vessel from stem to stern. I could see them examining the dead sailors, evidently for signs of life, and presently a party of them appeared from below dragging a little figure among them. The creature was considerably less than half as tall as the green Martian warriors, and from my balcony I could see that it walked erect upon two legs, and surmised that it was some new and strange Martian monstrosity with which I had not as yet become acquainted. They removed their prisoner to the ground, and then commenced a systematic rifling of the vessel. This operation required several hours, during which time a number of the chariots were requisitioned to transport the loot, which consisted in arms, ammunition, silks, furs, jewels, Strangely carved stone vessels, and a quantity of solid foods and liquids, including many casks of water, the first I had seen since my advent upon Mars. After the last load had been removed, the warriors made lines fast to the craft and towed her far out into the valley in a southwesterly direction. A few of them then boarded her and were busily engaged in what appeared, from my distant position, As the emptying of the contents of various carboys upon the dead bodies of the sailors and over the decks and works of the vessel. This operation concluded, they hastily clambered over her sides, sliding down the guy ropes to the ground. The last warrior to leave the deck turned and threw something back upon the vessel, waiting an instant to note the outcome of his act. As a faint spurt of flame rose from the point where the missile struck, He swung over the side and was quickly upon the ground. Scarcely had he alighted than the guy ropes were simultaneously released, and the great warship, lightened by the removal of the loot, soared majestically into the air, her decks and upper works a mass of roaring flames. Slowly she drifted to the southeast, rising higher and higher as the flames ate away her wooden parts, and diminished the weight upon her. Ascending to the roof of the building i watched her for hours until finally she was lost in the dim vistas of the distance the sight was awe-inspiring in the extreme as one contemplated this mighty floating funeral pyre drifting unguided and unmanned through the lonely wastes of the martian heavens a derelict of death and destruction typifying the life story of these strange and ferocious creatures into whose unfriendly hands fate had carried it much depressed and to me, unaccountably so, I slowly descended to the street. The scene I had witnessed seemed to mark the defeat and annihilation of the forces of a kindred people, rather than the routing by our green warriors of a horde of similar though unfriendly creatures. I could not fathom the seeming hallucination, nor could I free myself from it, but somewhere in the innermost recesses of my soul I felt a strange yearning toward these unknown foemen. AND A MIGHTY HOPE SURGED THROUGH ME THAT THE FLEET WOULD RETURN, AND DEMAND A RECKONING FROM THE GREEN WARRIORS, WHO HAD SO RUTHLESSLY AND WANTONLY ATTACKED IT. CLOSE AT MY HEEL, IN HIS NOW ACCUSTOMED PLACE, FOLLOWED WOOLA, THE hound. AND, AS I EMERGED UPON THE STREET, SOLA RUSHED UP TO ME AS THOUGH I HAD BEEN THE OBJECT OF SOME SEARCH ON HER PART. THE CAVALCADE WAS RETURNING TO THE PLAZA, THE HOMEWARD MARCH HAVING been GIVEN UP FOR THAT DAY nor in fact was it recommenced for more than a week owing to the fear of a return attack by the aircraft lorquasp tolmal was too astute an old warrior to be caught upon the open plains with a caravan of chariots and children and so we remained at the deserted city until the danger seemed past as sola and i entered the plaza a sight met my eyes which filled my whole being with a great surge of mingled hope fear exultation and depression, and yet most dominant was a subtle sense of relief and happiness. For just as we neared the throng of Martians I caught a glimpse of the prisoner from the battlecraft who was being roughly dragged into a nearby building by a couple of green Martian females, and the sight which met my eyes was that of a slender, girlish figure, similar in every detail to the earthly women of my past life. She did not see me at first, but just as she was disappearing through the portal of the building, which was to be her prison, she turned, and her eyes met mine. Her face was oval and beautiful in the extreme. Her every feature was finely chiseled and exquisite. Her eyes, large and lustrous, and her head surmounted by a mass of coal-black waving hair, caught loosely into a strange yet becoming coiffure. Her skin was of a light reddish copper color, against which the crimson glow of her cheeks and the ruby of her beautifully molded lips shone with a strangely enhancing effect. She was as destitute of clothes as the green Martians who accompanied her. Indeed, save for her highly wrought ornaments, she was entirely naked. Nor could any apparel have enhanced the beauty of her perfect and symmetrical figure. As her gaze rested on me... Her eyes opened wide in astonishment, and she made a little sign with her free hand, a sign which I did not, of course, understand. Just a moment we gazed upon each other, and then the look of hope and renewed courage which had glorified her face as she discovered me faded into one of utter dejection, mingled with loathing and contempt. I realized I had not answered her signal, and, ignorant as I was of Martian customs, I intuitively felt that she had made an appeal for succor and protection, which my unfortunate ignorance had prevented me from answering. And then she was dragged out of my sight into the depths of the deserted edifice. End of chapter 8 Chapter 9 of A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs This LibriVox recording is in the public domain recording by thomas copeland chapter 9 i learn the language as i came back to myself i glanced at sola who had witnessed this encounter and i was surprised to note a strange expression upon her usually expressionless countenance what her thoughts were i did not know for as yet i had learned but little of the martian tongue enough only to suffice for my daily needs as i reached the doorway of our building a strange surprise awaited me a warrior approached bearing the arms ornaments and full accouterments of his kind these he presented to me with a few unintelligible words and a bearing at once respectful and menacing later sola with the aid of several of the other women remodelled the trappings to fit my lesser proportions AND AFTER THEY COMPLETED THE WORK, I WENT ABOUT GARBED IN ALL THE PANOPLY OF WAR. FROM THEN ON, SOLA INSTRUCTED ME IN THE MYSTERIES OF THE VARIOUS WEAPONS, AND WITH THE MARTIAN YOUNG I SPENT SEVERAL HOURS EACH DAY PRACTICING UPON THE PLAZA. I WAS NOT YET PROFICIENT WITH ALL THE WEAPONS, BUT MY GREAT FAMILIARITY WITH SIMILAR EARTHLY WEAPONS MADE ME AN UNUSUALLY APT PUPIL, AND I PROGRESSED IN A VERY SATISFACTORY MANNER. The training of myself and the young Martians was conducted solely by the women, who not only attend to the education of the young in the arts of individual defense and offense, but are also the artisans who produce every manufactured article wrought by the green Martians. They make the powder, the cartridges, the firearms. In fact, everything of value is produced by the females. In time of actual warfare they form a part of the reserves and when the necessity arises, fight with even greater intelligence and ferocity than the men. The men are trained in the higher branches of the art of war, in strategy and the maneuvering of large bodies of troops. They make the laws as they are needed. A new law for each emergency. They are unfettered by precedent in the administration of justice. Customs have been handed down by ages of repetition, BUT THE PUNISHMENT FOR IGNORING A CUSTOM IS A MATTER FOR INDIVIDUAL TREATMENT BY A JURY OF THE CULPRIT'S PEERS, AND I MAY SAY THAT JUSTICE SELDOM MISSES FIRE, BUT SEEMS RATHER TO RULE IN INVERSE RATIO TO THE ascendancy OF LAW. IN ONE RESPECT, AT LEAST, THE MARTIANS ARE A HAPPY PEOPLE. THEY HAVE NO LAWYERS. I DID NOT SEE THE PRISONER AGAIN FOR SEVERAL DAYS SUBSEQUENT TO OUR FIRST ENCOUNTER and then only to catch a fleeting glimpse of her as she was being conducted to the great audience-chamber where I had had my first meeting with Loquas I could not but note the unnecessary harshness and brutality with which her guards treated her, so different from the almost maternal kindliness which Sola manifested toward me, and the respectful attitude of the few green Martians who took the trouble to notice me at all i had observed on the two occasions when i had seen her that the prisoner exchanged words with her guards and this convinced me that they spoke or at least could make themselves understood by a common language with this added incentive i nearly drove sola distracted with my importunities to hasten on my education and within a few more days i had mastered the martian tongue sufficiently well to enable me to carry on a passable conversation and to fully understand practically all that I heard. At this time our sleeping quarters were occupied by three or four females, and a couple of the recently hatched young, besides Sola and her youthful ward, myself, and Woola, the hound. After they had retired for the night, it was customary for the adults to carry on a desultory conversation for a short time before lapsing into sleep. And now that I could understand their language, I was always a keen listener, although I never proffered any remarks myself. On the night following the prisoner's visit to the audience chamber the conversation finally fell upon this subject, and I was all ears on the instant. I had feared to question Sola relative to the beautiful captive, as I could not but recall the strange expression I had noted upon her face after my first encounter with the prisoner that it denoted jealousy i could not say and yet judging all things by mundane standards as i still did i felt it safer to affect indifference in the matter until i learned more surely sola's attitude toward the object of my solicitude sarkoja one of the older women who shared our domicile had been present at the audience as one of the captive's guards and it was toward her the question turned. When, asked one of the women, will we enjoy the death-throes of the Red One, or does Lorquas Tomel, Jed, intend holding her for ransom? They have decided to carry her with us back to Thark, and exhibit her last agonies at the Great Games, before Tal Hajus replied Sarkocha. What will be the manner of her going out? inquired Sola. She is very small and very beautiful. I had hoped that they would hold her for ransom. Sarkocha and the other women grunted angrily at this evidence of weakness on the part of Sola. "'It is sad, Sola, that you were not born a million years ago,' snapped Sarkocha, when all the hollows of the land were filled with water, and the peoples were as soft as the stuff they sailed upon. In our day we have progressed to a point where such sentiments mark weakness and atavism. It will not be well for you to permit Tars Tarkas to learn THAT YOU HOLD SUCH DEGENERATE SENTIMENTS, AS I DOUBT THAT HE WOULD CARE TO ENTRUST SUCH AS YOU WITH THE GRAVE RESPONSIBILITIES OF MATERNITY. I SEE NOTHING WRONG WITH MY EXPRESSION OF INTEREST IN THIS RED WOMAN, RETORTED SOLA. SHE HAS NEVER HARMED US, NOR WOULD SHE SHOULD WE HAVE FALLEN INTO HER HANDS. IT IS ONLY THE MEN OF HER KIND WHO war UPON US, AND I HAVE EVER THOUGHT THAT THEIR ATTITUDE TOWARD US IS BUT THE REFLECTION OF OURS TOWARD THEM. They live at peace with all their fellows, except when duty calls upon them to make war, while we are at peace with none. Forever warring among our own kind as well as upon the red men, and even in our own communities the individuals fight among themselves. Oh, it is one continual awful period of bloodshed from the time we break the shell until we gladly embrace the bosom of the river of mystery, the dark and ancient Ish, which carries us to an unknown but at least no more frightful and terrible existence. Fortunate indeed is he who meets his end in an early death. Say what you please to Taurus Tarkas. He can meet out no worse fate to me than a continuation of the horrible existence we are forced to lead in this life. This wild outbreak on the part of Sola so greatly surprised and shocked the other women that after a few words of general reprimand they all lapsed into silence and were soon asleep. One thing the episode had accomplished was to assure me of Sola's friendliness toward the poor girl, and also to convince me that I had been extremely fortunate in falling into her hands rather than into those of some of the other females. I knew that she was fond of me, and now that I had discovered that she hated cruelty and barbarity, I was confident that I could depend upon her to aid me and the girl captive to escape provided, of course, that such a thing was within the range of possibilities. I did not even know that there were any better conditions to escape to, but I was more than willing to take my chances among people fashioned after my own mould, rather than to remain longer among the hideous and bloodthirsty green men of Mars. But where to go, and how, was as much of a puzzle to me as the age-old search for the spring of eternal life has been to earthly men since the beginning of time. I decided that at the first opportunity I would take Sola into my confidence, and openly ask her to aid me, and with this resolution strong upon me, I turned among my silks and furs, and slept the dreamless and refreshing sleep of Mars. End of chapter 9 Chapter 10 of A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland. CHAPTER X. Champion and Chief. Early the next morning I was astir. Considerable freedom was allowed me, as Sola had informed me that so long as I did not attempt to leave the city, I was free to go and come as I pleased. She had warned me, however, against venturing forth unarmed as this city, like all other deserted metropolises of an ancient Martian civilization, was peopled by the great white apes of my second day's adventure. In advising me that I must not leave the boundaries of the city, Sola had explained that Woola would prevent this anyway should I attempt it, and she warned me most urgently not to arouse his fierce nature by ignoring his warnings should I venture too close to the forbidden territory his nature was such she said that he would bring me back into the city dead or alive should i persist in opposing him preferably dead she added on this morning i had chosen a new street to explore when suddenly i found myself at the limits of the city before me were low hills pierced by narrow and inviting ravines i longed to explore the country before me and like the pioneer stock from which i sprang to view what the landscape beyond the encircling hills might disclose from the summits which shut out my view. It also occurred to me that this would prove an excellent opportunity to test the qualities of Woola. I was convinced that the brute loved me. I had seen more evidences of affection in him than in any other Martian animal, man or beast, and I was sure that gratitude for the acts that had twice saved his life, would more than outweigh his loyalty to the duty imposed upon him by cruel and loveless masters as i approached the boundary line Woolow ran anxiously before me and thrust his body against my legs his expression was pleading rather than ferocious nor did he bear his great tusks or utter his fearful guttural warnings denied the friendship and companionship of my kind I had developed considerable affection for Woola and Sola, for the normal earthly man must have some outlet for his natural affections, and so I decided upon an appeal to a like instinct in this great brute, sure that I would not be disappointed. I had never petted nor fondled him, but now I sat upon the ground, and putting my arms around his heavy neck, I stroked and coaxed him talking in my newly acquired Martian tongue as I would have to my hound at home, as I would have talked to any other friend among the lower animals. His response to my manifestation of affection was remarkable to a degree. He stretched his great mouth to its full width, bearing the entire expanse of his upper rows of tusks, and wrinkling his snout until his great eyes were almost hidden by the folds of flesh. If you have ever seen a collie smile, you may have some idea of Willow's facial distortion. He threw himself upon his back and fairly wallowed at my feet, jumped up and sprang upon me, rolling me upon the ground by his great weight, then wriggling and squirming around me like a playful puppy presenting its back for the petting it craves." I could not resist the ludicrousness of the spectacle, and holding my sides, I rocked back and forth in the first laughter which had passed my lips in many days. The first, in fact, since the morning Powell had left camp, when his horse, long unused, had precipitately and unexpectedly bucked him off, head foremost, into a pot of Riholes. My laughter frightened Woola, his antics ceased and he crawled pitifully toward me, poking his ugly head far into my lap. And then I remembered what laughter signified on Mars—torture, suffering, death. Quieting myself, I rubbed the poor old fellow's head and back, talked to him for a few minutes, and then, in an authoritative tone, commanded him to follow me, and, arising, started for the hills. There was no further question of authority between us— Woola was my devoted slave from that moment hence, and I his only and undisputed master. My walk to the hills occupied but a few minutes, and I found nothing of particular interest to reward me. Numerous brilliantly colored and strangely formed wild flowers dotted the ravines, and from the summit of the first hill I saw still other hills stretching off toward the north, and rising one range above another, until lost in the mountains of quite respectable dimensions. Though I afterwards found that only a few peaks on all Mars exceed four thousand feet in height, the suggestion of magnitude was merely relative. My morning's walk had been large with importance to me, for it had resulted in a perfect understanding with Woola, upon whom Tars Tarkas relied for my safe keeping. I now knew that while theoretically a prisoner, I was virtually free, and I hastened to regain the city limits before the defection of Woola could be discovered by his erstwhile masters. The adventure decided me never again to leave the limits of my prescribed stamping grounds until I was ready to venture forth for good and all, as it would certainly result in a curtailment of my liberties, as well as the probable death of Woola were we to be discovered. On regaining the plaza, I had my third glimpse of the captive girl. She was standing with her guards before the entrance to the audience chamber, and as I approached she gave me one haughty glance and turned her back full upon me. The act was so womanly, so earthly womanly, that, though it stung my pride, it also warmed my heart with a feeling of companionship. It was good to know that someone else on Mars beside myself had human instincts of a civilized order, even though the manifestation of them was so painful and mortifying. Had a green Martian woman desired to show dislike or contempt, she would in all likelihood have done it with a sword thrust, or a movement of her trigger finger. But as their sentiments are mostly atrophied, it would have required a serious injury to have aroused such passions in them. Sola, let me add, was an exception. I never saw her perform a cruel or uncouth act, or fail in uniform kindliness and good nature. She was indeed, as her fellow Martian had said of her, an atavism, a dear and precious reversion to a former type of loved and loving ancestor. Seeing that the prisoner seemed the center of attraction, I halted to view the proceedings. I had not long to wait. For presently Lorquas Tommel, and his retinue of chieftains, approached the building, and signing the guards to follow with the prisoner, entered the audience chamber. Realizing that I was a somewhat favored character, and also convinced that the warriors did not know of my proficiency in their language, as I had pled with Sola to keep this a secret on the grounds that I did not wish to be forced to talk with the men until I had perfectly mastered the Martian tongue, I chanced an attempt to enter the audience-chamber and listen to the proceedings. The council squatted upon the steps of the rostrum, while below them stood the prisoner and her two guards. I saw that one of the women was Sarkocha, and thus understood how she had been present at the hearing of the preceding day, the results of which she had reported to the occupants of our dormitory last night. Her attitude toward the captive was most harsh and brutal. When she held her, she sunk her rudimentary nails into the poor girl's flesh, or twisted her arm in a most painful manner. When it was necessary to move from one spot to another, she either jerked her roughly, or pushed her headlong before her. She seemed to be venting upon this poor defenseless creature all the hatred, cruelty, ferocity, and spite of her nine hundred years, backed by unguessable ages of fierce and brutal ancestors. The other woman was less cruel, because she was entirely indifferent. If the prisoner had been left to her alone, and fortunately she was at night, she would have received no harsh treatment, nor by the same token would she have received any attention at all. As Lorquas Ptomel raised his eyes to address the prisoner, they fell on me, and he turned to Tars Tarkas with a word and gesture of impatience. Tars Tarkas made some reply which I could not catch, but which caused Lorquas Ptomel to smile, after which they paid no further attention to me. "'What is your name?' asked Lorquas Ptomel, addressing the prisoner. "'Dejah Thoris, daughter of Moors Kajak of Helium.' "'And the nature of your expedition?' he continued. "'It was a purely scientific research party sent out by my father's father, the Jeddak of Helium.' to rechart the air currents, and to take atmospheric density tests, replied the fair prisoner, in a low, well-modulated voice. We were unprepared for battle, she continued, as we were on a peaceful mission, as our banners and the colors of her craft denoted. The work we were doing was as much in your interests as in ours, for you know full well that were it not for our labors and the fruits of our scientific operations, there would not be enough air or water on Mars to support a single human life. For ages we have maintained the air and water supply at practically the same point without an appreciable loss, and we have done this in the face of the brutal and ignorant interference of you green men. Why, oh why, will you not learn to live in amity with your fellows? Must you ever go on down the ages to your final extinction, but little above the plane of the dumb brutes that serve you? a People without written language, without art, without homes, without love, the victims of eons of the horrible community idea. Owning everything in common, even to your women and children, has resulted in your owning nothing in common. You hate each other as you hate all else except yourselves. Come back to the ways of our common ancestors. Come back to the light of kindliness and fellowship. The way is open to you. You will find the hands of the red men stretched out to aid you. Together we may do still more to regenerate our dying planet. The granddaughter of the greatest and mightiest of the red jeddaks has asked you, Will you come?' Lorquas Tomel, and the warriors sat looking silently and intently at the young woman for several moments after she had ceased speaking. What was passing in their minds no man may know, but that they were moved I truly believe, and if one man high among them had been strong enough to rise above custom, that moment would have marked a new and mighty era for Mars. I saw Tars Tarkas rise to speak. "'and on his face was such an expression "'as I had never seen upon the countenance "'of a green Martian warrior. "'It bespoke an inward and mighty battle with self, "'with heredity, with age-old custom, "'and as he opened his mouth to speak "'a look almost of benignity, of kindliness, "'momentarily lighted up his fierce and terrible countenance. "'What words of moment were to have fallen from his lips "'were never spoken.' as just then a young warrior, evidently sensing the trend of thought among the older men, leaped down from the steps of the rostrum, and striking the frail captive a powerful blow across the face, which fell to the floor, placed his foot upon her prostrate form, and, turning toward the assembled council, broke into peals of horrid, mirthless laughter. For an instant I thought Tars Tarkas would strike him dead nor did the aspect of Lorquas Ptomel augur any too favorably for the brute. But the mood passed, their old selves reasserted their ascendancy, and they smiled. It was portentous, however, that they did not laugh aloud, for the brute's act constituted a side-splitting witticism, according to the ethics which rule green Martian humor. That I have taken moments to write down a part of what occurred as that blow fell, does not signify that I remained inactive for any such length of time. I think I must have sensed something of what was coming, for I realize now that I was crouched, as for a spring, as I saw the blow aimed at her beautiful upturned pleading face, and ere the hand descended I was halfway across the hall. Scarcely had his hideous laugh rung out but once— when I was upon him. The brute was twelve feet in height and armed to the teeth, but I believe that I could have counted for the whole roomful in the terrific intensity of my rage. Springing upward I struck him full in the face as he turned at my warning cry, and then as he drew his short sword I drew mine and sprang at him again upon his breast, hooking one leg over the butt of his pistol and grasping one of his huge tusks with my left hand while I delivered blow after blow upon his enormous chest. He could not use his short-sword to advantage because I was too close to him, nor could he draw his pistol, which he attempted to do in direct opposition to Martian custom, which says that you may not fight a fellow-warrior in private combat with any other than the weapons with which you are attacked. In fact, he could do nothing but make a wild and futile attempt to dislodge me. With all his immense bulk, he was little if any stronger than I, and it was but the matter of a moment or two before he sank bleeding and lifeless to the floor. Dejah Thoris had raised herself upon one elbow and was watching the battle with wide, staring eyes. When I had regained my feet, I raised her in my arms and bore her to one of the benches at the side of the room. Again. No Martian interfered with me, and, tearing a piece of silk from my cape, I endeavored to staunch the flow of blood from her nostrils. I was soon successful, as her injuries amounted to little more than an ordinary nosebleed, and, when she could speak, she placed her hand upon my arm, and, looking up into my eyes, said, Why did you it? You, who refused me even friendly recognition in the first hour of my peril! and now you risk your life and kill one of your companions for my sake. I cannot understand. What strange manner of man are you, that you consort with the green men, though your form is that of my race, while your color is little darker than that of a white ape? Tell me, are you human, or are you more than human?' "'It is a strange tale,' I replied, too long to attempt to tell you now. "'and one which I so much doubt the credibility of myself "'that I fear That I fear to hope that others will believe it. "'Suffice it for the present that I am your friend, "'and so far as our captors will permit, "'your protector and your servant. "'Then you too are a prisoner? "'But why then those arms and the regalia "'of the Tharkian chieftain? "'What is your name? "'Where your country?' Yes, Dejah Thoris, I too am a prisoner. My name is John Carter, and I claim Virginia, one of the United States of America, Earth, as my home. But why am I permitted to wear arms, I do not know. Nor was I aware that my regalia was that of a chieftain. We were interrupted at this juncture by the approach of one of the warriors bearing arms, accouterments, and ornaments, and in a flash one of her questions was answered, and a puzzle cleared up for me. I saw that the body of my dead antagonist had been stripped, and I read the menacing yet respectful attitude of the warrior who had brought me these trophies of the kill, the same demeanour as that evinced by the other who had brought me my original equipment. And now, for the first time, I realized that my blow, on the occasion of my first battle in the audience chamber, had resulted in the death of my adversary. The reason for the whole attitude displayed toward me was now apparent. I had won my spurs, so to speak, and in the crude justice which always marks Martian dealings, and which, among other things, had caused me to call her the planet of paradoxes, I was accorded the honors due a conqueror, the trappings and the position of the man I killed. In truth, I was a Martian chieftain and this I learned later was the cause of my great freedom and my toleration in the audience chamber. As I had turned to receive the dead warrior's chattels, I had noticed that Tars Tarkas and several others had pushed forward toward us, and the eyes of the former rested upon me in a most quizzical manner. Finally he addressed me, "'You speak the tongue of Barsoom quite readily for one who was deaf and dumb to us a few short days ago. Where did you learn it, John Carter?' "'You yourself are responsible, Tars Tarkas,' I replied, in that you furnished me with an instructress of remarkable ability. I have to thank Sola for my learning.' "Mm, "'She has done well,' he answered. "'But your education in other respects needs considerable polish.' Do you know what your unprecedented temerity would have cost you, had you failed to kill either of the two chieftains whose metal you now wear? I presume that one whom I had failed to kill would have killed me, I answered, smiling. No, you are wrong. Only in the last extremity of self-defense would a Martian warrior kill a prisoner. We like to save them for other purposes." And his face bespoke possibilities that were not pleasant to dwell upon. "'But one thing can save you now,' he continued. "'Should you, in recognition of your remarkable valour, ferocity, and prowess, be considered by Tal Hodges as worthy of his service, you may be taken into the community and become a full-fledged Tharkian. "'Until we reach the headquarters of Tal Hajus,' It is the will of Lorquas Tomel that you be accorded the respect your acts have earned you. You will be treated by us as a Tharkian chieftain. But you must not forget that every chief who ranks you is responsible for your safe delivery to our mighty and most ferocious ruler. I am done. I hear you, Tars Tarkas, I answered. As you know, I am not of Barsoom. Your ways are not my ways and I can only act in the future as I have in the past, in accordance with the dictates of my conscience, and guided by the standards of mine own people. If you will leave me alone, I will go in peace. But if not, let the individual Barsoomians with whom I must deal either respect my rights as a stranger among you, or take whatever consequences may befall. Of one thing let us be sure. Whatever may be your ultimate intentions toward this unfortunate young woman, whoever would offer her injury or insult in the future must figure on making a full accounting to me. I understand that you belittle all sentiments of generosity and kindliness, but I do not. And I can convince your most doughty warrior that these characteristics are not incompatible with an ability to fight." Ordinarily I am not given to long speeches, nor ever before had I descended to bombast. But I had guessed at the keynote which would strike an answering chord in the breasts of the green Martians, nor was I wrong, for my harangue evidently deeply impressed them, and their attitude toward me thereafter was still further respectful. Tars Tarkas himself seemed pleased with my reply, but his only comment was more or less enigmatical. And I think I know Tall Haljus, Jeddak of Thark. I now turned my attention to Dejah Thoris, and, assisting her to her feet, I turned with her toward the exit, ignoring her hovering guardian harpies, as well as the inquiring glances of the chieftains. Was I not now a chieftain also? Well, then, I would assume the responsibilities of one. They did not molest us. And so Dejah Thoris, Princess of Helium, and John Carter, Gentleman of Virginia, followed by the faithful Woola, passed through utter silence from the audience chamber of Lorquas Tomel, Jed among the Tharks of Barsoom. End of Chapter Ten. Chapter Eleven of A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice BURROWS This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland. Chapter 11 With Dejah Thoris. As we reached the open, the two female guards who had been detailed to watch over Dejah Thoris hurried up and made as though to assume custody of her once more. The poor child shrank against me, and I felt her two little hands fold tightly over my arm. Waving the women away, I informed them that Sola would attend the captive hereafter, and I further warned Sarkoja that any more of her cruel attentions bestowed upon Dejah Thoris would result in Sarkoja's sudden and painful demise. My threat was unfortunate, and resulted in more harm than good to Dejah Thoris, for, as I learned later, men do not kill women upon Mars, nor women men. So Sarkoja merely gave us an ugly look, and departed to hatch up deviltries against us. I soon found Sola, and explained to her that I wished her to guard Dejah Thoris as she had guarded me, that I wished her to find other quarters where they would not be molested by Sarkoja, and I finally informed her that I myself would take up my quarters among the men. Sola glanced at the accoutrements which were carried in my hand, and slung across my shoulder you are a great chieftain now john carter she said and i must do your bidding though indeed i am glad to do it under any circumstances the man whose medal you carry was young but he was a great warrior and had by his promotions and kills won his way close to the rank of tars who as you know is second to lorquas Tomel only you are eleventh there are but ten chieftains in this community who rank you in prowess and if i should kill lorquas ptomel i asked you would be first john carter but you may only win that honour by the will of the entire council that lorquas ptomel meet you in combat or should he attack you you may kill him in self-defence and thus win first place i laughed and changed the subject i had no particular desire to kill lorquas ptomel and less to be a jed among the tharks i accompanied sola and dejah thoris In a search for new quarters, which we found in a building nearer the audience chamber and of far more pretentious architecture than our former habitation. We also found in this building real sleeping apartments with ancient beds of highly wrought metal swinging from enormous gold chains depending from the marble ceilings. The decoration of the walls was most elaborate, and unlike the frescoes in the other buildings I had examined, portrayed many human figures in the compositions. These were of people like myself, and of a much lighter color than Dejah Thoris. They were clad in graceful flowing robes, highly ornamented with metal and jewels, and their luxuriant hair was of a beautiful golden and reddish bronze. The men were beardless, and only a few wore arms. The scenes depicted for the most part a fair-skinned, fair-haired people at play. Dejah Thoris clasped her hands with an exclamation of rapture, as she gazed upon these magnificent works of art wrought by a people long extinct, while Sola, on the other hand, apparently did not see them. We decided to use this room, on the second floor and overlooking the plaza, for Dejah Thoris and Sola, and another room adjoining, and in the rear, for the cooking and supplies. I then dispatched Sola to bring the bedding and such food and utensils as she might need, telling her that I would guard Dejah Thoris until her return. As Sola departed, Dejah Thoris turned to me with a faint smile. And where to, then, would your prisoner escape, should you leave her, unless it was to follow you and crave your protection and ask your pardon for the cruel thought she has harbored against you these past few days? You are right, I answered. There is no escape for either of us, unless we go together. I heard your challenge to the creature you call Tars Takas. AND I THINK I UNDERSTAND YOUR POSITION AMONG THESE PEOPLE. BUT WHAT I CANNOT FATHOM IS YOUR STATEMENT THAT YOU ARE NOT OF BARSOOM. IN THE NAME OF MY FIRST ANCESTOR, THEN, SHE CONTINUED, WHERE MAY YOU BE FROM? YOU ARE LIKE UNTO MY PEOPLE, AND YET SO UNLIKE. YOU SPEAK MY LANGUAGE, AND YET I HEARD YOU TELL TARS Tarkas THAT YOU HAD BUT LEARNED IT RECENTLY. ALL BARSOOMIANS SPEAK THE SAME TONGUE, FROM THE ICE-CLAD SOUTH TO THE ICE-CLAD NORTH though their written languages differ. Only in the valley Dor, where the river Ish empties into the lost sea of Korus, is there supposed to be a different language spoken, and, except in the legends of our ancestors, there is no record of a Barsoomian returning up the river Ish from the shores of Korus in the valley of Dor. Do not tell me that you have thus returned. They would kill you horribly anywhere upon the surface of Barsoom, if that were true, tell me it is not her eyes were filled with a strange weird light her voice was pleading and her little hands reached up upon my breast were pressed against me as though to wring a denial from my very heart i do not know your customs dejah thoris but in my own virginia a gentleman does not lie to save himself i am not at door i have never seen the mysterious ish the lost sea of chorus is still lost so far as i am concerned do you believe me?" And then it struck me suddenly that I was very anxious that she should believe me. It was not that I feared the results which would follow a general belief that I had returned from the Barsoomian Heaven or Hell, or whatever it was. Why was it then? Why should I care what she thought? I looked down at her, her beautiful face upturned, and her wonderful eyes opening up the very depth of her soul, and as my eyes met hers, I knew why. And I shuddered. A similar wave of feeling seemed to stir her. She drew away from me with a sigh, and with her earnest, beautiful face turned up to mine, she whispered, I believe you, John Carter. I do not know what a gentleman is, nor have I ever heard before of Virginia, but on Barsoom no man lies. If he does not wish to speak the truth, he is silent. Where is this Virginia? Your country, John Carter, she asked, and it seemed that this fair name of my fair land had never sounded more beautiful than as it fell from those perfect lips on that far-gone day. I am of another world, I answered, the great planet Earth, which revolves about our common sun, and next within the orbit of your Parsum, which we know as Mars. How I came here I cannot tell you, for I do not know, but here I am. And since my presence has permitted me to serve Dejah Thoris, I am glad that I am here. She gazed at me with troubled eyes long and questioningly. That it was difficult to believe my statement I well knew, nor could I hope that she would do so, however much I craved her confidence and respect. I would much rather not have told her anything of my antecedents, but no man could look into the depth of those eyes and refuse her slightest behest. Finally she smiled, and, rising, said, "'I shall have to believe, even though I cannot understand. I can readily perceive that you are not of the barsoom of today. You are like us, yet different. But why should I trouble my poor head with such a problem, when my heart tells me that I believe because I wish to believe?' It had good logic, good earthly feminine logic, And if it satisfied her, I certainly could pick no flaws in it. As a matter of fact, it was about the only kind of logic that could be brought to bear upon my problem. We fell into a general conversation then, asking and answering many questions on each side. She was curious to learn of the customs of my people, and displayed a remarkable knowledge of events on earth. When I questioned her closely on this seeming familiarity with earthly things, she laughed and cried out, why every schoolboy on barsoom knows the geography and much concerning the fauna and flora as well as the history of your planet fully as well as of his own can we not see everything which takes place upon earth as you call it is it not hanging there in the heavens in plain sight this baffled me i must confess fully as much as my statements had confounded her and i told her so she then explained in general the instruments her people had used and been perfecting for ages which permit them to throw upon a screen a perfect image of what is transpiring upon any planet, and upon many of the stars. These pictures are so perfect in detail that, when photographed and enlarged, objects no greater than a blade of grass may be distinctly recognized. I afterward in Helium saw many of these pictures, as well as the instruments which produced them. If, then, you are so familiar with earthly things, I ask, why is it that you do not recognize me as identical with the inhabitants of that planet? She smiled again as one might in bored indulgence to a questioning child. Because, John Carter, she replied, nearly every planet and star having atmospheric conditions at all approaching those of Barsoom shows forms of animal life almost identical with you and me. And further earthmen almost without exception cover their bodies with strange unsightly pieces of cloth and their heads with hideous contraptions the purpose of which we have been unable to conceive while you when found by the Tharkian warriors were entirely undisfigured and unadorned the fact that you wore no ornaments is a strong proof of your unbarsoomian origin while the absence of grotesque coverings might cause a doubt as to your earthliness I then narrated the details of my departure from the earth, explaining that my body there lay fully clothed in all the, uh, to her, strange garments of mundane dwellers. At this point Sola returned with our meagre belongings and her young Martian protégé, who of course would have to share the quarters with them. Sola asked us if we had had a visitor during her absence, and seemed much surprised when we answered in the negative. It seemed that, as she had mounted the approach of the upper floors where our quarters were located, she had met Sarkocha descending. We decided that she must have been eavesdropping, but as we could recall nothing of importance that had passed between us, we dismissed the matter as of little consequence, merely promising ourselves to be warned to the utmost caution in the future." Dejah Thoris and I then fell to examining the architecture and decorations of the beautiful chambers of the building we were occupying. She told me that these people had presumably flourished over a hundred thousand years before. They were the early progenitors of her race, but had mixed with the other great race of early Martians, who were very dark, almost black, and also with the reddish-yellow race which had flourished at the same time. These three great divisions of the higher Martians had been forced into a mighty alliance as the drying up of the Martian seas had compelled them to seek the comparatively few and always diminishing fertile areas, and to defend themselves under the new conditions of life against the wild hordes of green men. Ages of close relationship and intermarrying had resulted in the race of red men, of which Dejah Thoris was a fair and beautiful daughter. During the ages of hardships and incessant warring between their own various races, as well as with the green men, and before they had fitted themselves to the changed conditions, much of the high civilization and many of the arts of the fair-haired Martians had become lost. But the red race of today has reached a point where it feels that it is made up in new discoveries and in a more practical civilization for all that lies irretrievably buried with the ancient Barsumians beneath the countless intervening ages. These ancient Martians had been a highly cultivated and literary race, but during the vicissitudes of those trying centuries of readjustment to new conditions, not only did their advancement and production cease entirely, but practically all their archives, records, and literature were lost. Dejah Thoris related many interesting facts and legends concerning this lost race, of noble and kindly people. She said that the city in which we were camping was supposed to have been a centre of commerce and culture known as Korad. It had been built upon a beautiful natural harbour, landlocked by magnificent hills. The little valley on the west front of the city, she explained, was all that remained of the harbour, while the pass through the hills to the old sea-bottom had been the channel through which the shipping passed up to the city's gates. The shores of the ancient seas were dotted with just such cities, and lesser ones in diminishing numbers were to be found converging toward the center of the oceans, as the people had found it necessary to follow the receding waters until necessity had forced upon them their ultimate salvation, the so-called Martian canals. We had been so engrossed in exploration of the building and in our conversation that it was late in the afternoon before we realized it we were brought back to a realization of our present conditions by a messenger bearing a summons from lorquas ptomel directing me to appear before him forthwith bidding dejah thoris and sola farewell and commanding woola to remain on guard i hastened to the audience chamber where i found lorquas ptomel and tars tarkas seated upon the rostrum End of chapter eleven Chapter twelve of a Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burrows. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland. Chapter twelve. A Prisoner With Power. As I entered and saluted, Lorquas Tomal signaled me to advance, and fixing his great hideous eyes upon me, addressed me thus. You have been with us a few days. Yet during that time You have, by your prowess, won a high position among us. Be that as it may, you are not one of us. You owe us no allegiance. Your position is a peculiar one, he continued. You are a prisoner, and yet you give commands which must be obeyed. You are an alien, and yet you are a Tharkian chieftain. You are a midget, and yet you can kill a mighty warrior with one blow of your fist. "'And now you are reported to have been plotting to escape "'with another prisoner of another race, "'a prisoner who, from her own admission, "'half believes you are returned from the Valley of Dor. "'Either one of these accusations, if proved, "'would be sufficient grounds for your execution. "'But we are just people, "'and you shall have a trial on your return to Thark, "'if Talhages so commands.' "'But,' he continued,' In his fierce guttural tones, if you run off with the red girl, it is I who shall have to account to Talhajus. It is I who shall have to face Tars Tarkas, and either demonstrate my right to command, or the metal from my dead carcass will go to a better man, for such is the custom of the Tharks. I have no quarrel with Tars Tarkas. Together we rule supreme the greatest of the lesser communities among the green men we do not wish to fight between ourselves and so if you were dead john carter i should be glad under two conditions only however may you be killed by us without orders from tal in personal combat in self-defense should you attack one of us or were you apprehended in an attempt to escape as a matter of justice i must warn you that we only await one of these two excuses for ridding ourselves of so great a responsibility. The safe delivery of the Red Girl to Talhajus is of the greatest importance. Not in a thousand years have the Tharks made such a capture. She is the granddaughter of the greatest of the Red Jeddaks, who is also our bitterest enemy. I have spoken. The Red Girl told us that we were without the softer sentiments of humanity. BUT WE ARE A JUST AND TRUTHFUL RACE. YOU MAY GO. TURNING, I LEFT THE AUDIENCE CHAMBER. SO, THIS WAS THE BEGINNING OF Sarkoja's PERSECUTION. I KNEW THAT NONE OTHER COULD BE RESPONSIBLE FOR THIS REPORT WHICH HAD REACHED THE EARS OF LOQUAS TOMEL SO QUICKLY, AND NOW I RECALLED THOSE PORTIONS OF OUR CONVERSATION WHICH HAD TOUCHED UPON ESCAPE AND UPON MY ORIGIN. Sarkoja was at this time Tars Tarkas oldest and most trusted female. As such, she was a mighty power behind the throne, for no warrior had the confidence of Lorquas Ptomel to such an extent as did his ablest lieutenant, Tars Tarkas. However, instead of putting thoughts of possible escape from my mind, my audience with Lorquas Ptomel only served to center my every faculty on this subject. Now, more than before, the absolute necessity for escape, in so far as Dejah Thoris was concerned, was impressed upon me. For I was convinced that some horrible fate awaited her at the headquarters of Hajus. As described by Sola, this monster was the exaggerated personification of all the ages of cruelty, ferocity, and brutality from which he had descended. Cold, cunning, calculating he was also in marked contrast to most of his fellows a slave to that brute passion which the waning demands for procreation upon their dying planet had almost stilled in the martian breast the thought that the divine thejah might fall into the clutches of such an abysmal atavism started the cold sweat upon me far better that we save friendly bullets for ourselves AT THE LAST MOMENT, AS DID THOSE BRAVE FRONTIER WOMEN OF MY LOST LAND, WHO TOOK THEIR OWN LIVES RATHER THAN FALL INTO THE HANDS OF THE INDIAN BRAVES. AS I WANDERED ABOUT THE PLAZA, LOST IN MY GLOOMY forebodings, TARS Tarkas APPROACHED ME ON HIS WAY FROM THE AUDIENCE CHAMBER. HIS DEMEANOUR TOWARD ME WAS UNCHANGED, AND HE GREETED ME AS THOUGH WE HAD NOT JUST PARTED A FEW MOMENTS BEFORE where are your quarters john carter he asked i have selected none i replied it seemed best that i quartered either by myself or among other warriors and i was awaiting an opportunity to ask your advice as you know and i smiled i am not yet familiar with all the customs of the tharks come with me he directed and together we moved off across the plaza to a building which i was glad to see adjoined that occupied by sola and her charges my quarters are on the first floor of this building he said and the second floor also is fully occupied by warriors but the third floor and the floors above are vacant you may take your choice of these." i understand he continued that you have given up your woman to the red prisoner well as you have said your ways are not our ways but you can fight well enough to do about as you please, and so if you wish to give your woman to a captive it is your own affair. But as a chieftain you should have those to serve you, and in accordance with our customs you may select any or all the females from the retinues of the chieftains whose metal you now wear. I thanked him, but assured him that I could get along very nicely without assistance, except in the matter of preparing food, and so he promised to send women to me for this purpose and also for the care of my arms and the manufacture of my ammunition which he said would be necessary i suggested that they might also bring some of the sleeping silks and furs which belonged to me as spoils of combat for the nights were cold and i had none of my own he promised to do so and departed left alone i ascended the winding corridor to the upper floors in search of suitable quarters. The beauties of the other buildings were repeated in this, and, as usual, I was soon lost in a tour of investigation and discovery. I finally chose a front room on the third floor, because this brought me nearer to Dejah Thoris, whose apartment was on the second floor of the adjoining building, and it flashed upon me that I could rig up some means of communication, whereby she might signal me in case she needed either my services or my protection. Adjoining my sleeping apartment were baths, dressing-rooms, and other sleeping and living apartments in all some ten rooms on this floor. The windows of the back rooms overlooked an enormous court which formed the center of the square made by the buildings which faced the four contiguous streets, and which was now given over to the quartering of the various animals belonging to the warriors occupying the adjoining buildings while the court was entirely overgrown with the yellow moss-like vegetation which blankets practically the entire surface of mars yet numerous fountains statuary benches and pergola-like contraptions bore witness to the beauty which the court must have presented in bygone times when graced by the fair-haired laughing people whom stern and unalterable cosmic laws had driven not only from their homes but from all except the vague legends of their descendants one could easily picture the gorgeous foliage of the luxuriant martian vegetation which once filled this scene with life and color the graceful figures of the beautiful women the straight and handsome men the happy frolicking children all sunlight happiness and peace it was difficult to realize that they had gone down through ages of darkness cruelty and ignorance until their hereditary instincts of culture and humanitarianism had risen ascendance once more in the final composite race which now is dominant upon Mars. My thoughts were cut short by the advent of several young females bearing loads of weapons, silks, furs, jewels, cooking utensils, and casks of food and drink, including considerable loot from the aircraft. All this, it seemed, had been the property of the two chieftains I had slain, and now, by the customs of the Tharks, it had become mine. At my direction they placed the stuff in one of the back rooms, and then departed, only to return with a second load, which they advised me constituted the balance of my goods. On the second trip they were accompanied by ten or fifteen other women and youths, who, it seemed, formed the retinues of the two chieftains. They were not their families, nor their wives, nor their servants. The relationship was peculiar and so unlike anything known to us that it is most difficult to describe. All property among the green Martians is owned in common by the community except the personal weapons, ornaments, and sleeping silks and furs of the individuals. These alone can one claim undisputed right to, nor may he accumulate more of these than are required for his actual needs. The surplus he holds merely as custodian, AND IT IS PASSED ON TO THE YOUNGER MEMBERS OF THE COMMUNITY AS NECESSITY DEMANDS. THE WOMEN AND CHILDREN OF A MAN'S RETINUE MAY BE LIKENED TO A MILITARY UNIT FOR WHICH HE IS RESPONSIBLE IN VARIOUS WAYS, AS IN MATTERS OF INSTRUCTION, DISCIPLINE, sustenance, AND THE EXIGENCIES OF THEIR CONTINUAL ROAMINGS AND THEIR UNENDING STRIFE WITH OTHER COMMUNITIES AND WITH THE RED MARTIANS. HIS WOMEN ARE IN NO SENSE WIVES. THE GREEN MARTIANS USE NO WORD CORRESPONDING IN MEANING WITH THIS EARTHLY WORD. THEIR MATING IS A MATTER OF COMMUNITY INTEREST SOLELY, AND IS DIRECTED WITHOUT REFERENCE TO NATURAL SELECTION. THE COUNCIL OF CHIEFTAINS OF EACH COMMUNITY CONTROL THE MATTER, AS SURELY AS THE OWNER OF A KENTUCKY RACING STUD directs THE SCIENTIFIC BREEDING OF HIS STOCK FOR THE IMPROVEMENT OF THE WHOLE. IN THEORY IT MAY SOUND WELL, AS IS OFTEN THE CASE WITH THEORIES, But the results of ages of this unnatural practice, coupled with the community interest in the offspring being held paramount to that of the mother, is shown in the cold, cruel creatures and their gloomy, loveless, mirthless existence. It is true that the green Martians are absolutely virtuous, both men and women, with the exception of such degenerates as Tal Hages, but better far a finer balance of human characteristics even at the expense of a slight and occasional loss of chastity. Finding that I must assume responsibility for these creatures, whether I would or not, I made the best of it, and directed them to find quarters on the upper floors, leaving the third floor to me. One of the girls I charged with the duties of my simple cuisine, and directed the others to take up the various activities which had formerly constituted their vocations. Thereafter, I saw little of them, nor did I care to. End of chapter 12. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership.